All right, so last we are in chapter three of William Osborne's book, Divine Blessing and the Fullness of Life in the Presence of God. Um, and uh, I, I've certainly been enjoying this. I, I didn't get to go through uh, Stephen's first chapter because I was in the other room, but last week was amazing, really good. This week, um, um, we're going to not only, you know, we're going to piggyback on what, what Stephen brought up in regards to those, those blessings that, that God pronounced to Abraham um, and that we even saw as explained uh, ex- those blessings that extended throughout Abraham's family, all the Jews eventually, even all the Jews, and even those eventually, ultimately, to those whose faith resembled or resembles that of Abraham. Well, as we know in the Bible, we read there is the people of Israel started to uh, multiply, became populous, right? That's part of the blessing, this, this understanding of multiply. Uh, well, they had to endure 400 years of slavery in Egypt. The Bible tells us that God remembered his covenant with Abraham. It says those exact words. His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God redeemed Israel from the midst of Egypt to be a people for himself. His inheritance. Well, this meant not only, of course, rescue from the hands of the Egyptians, but eventually it meant receiving a promised land. Those initial promises. It was then that Israel learned that it must, in this promised land context, they, they got to struggle and fight against the temptation to lose sight of their relationship to their covenant Lord because of their prosperity and blessing. Um, and so we know what that's like when your times are going really well, when you're living on the Lord's blessing in a demonstrable way, in a material way, we can get lax. And we can almost look at the, the blessings instead of the one who gives the blessings. Well, as we we're going to be doing this morning, just walking through the Old Testament, really major section of books throughout the Old Testament. Um, you know, we're, we're entering the Pentateuch here, right? We're, we're coming out of the book of Genesis. And we see how Moses warned them. Moses warned Israel. He foresaw their struggles that, that would come on them in this blessed land that they're going to inherit. And we see this talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 8, in verses 11 through 14. Moses is writing here, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God. This forgetting and remembering back and forth. They forget, God tells them to remember. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. He warned them this was going to happen. As the author of this book we're going through, William Osborne, puts it, he says, the reality is that the Old Testament is a story of Israel's covenant faithlessness 
and God's continued work despite Israel's sin. It's a powerful narrative that displays God's mercy. And we see time and again of God's faithfulness to the covenant that he established. You know, Stephen talked about that last week. The, how Abraham was, came under a deep sleep. And the animals were, were cut in two and this smoldering pot passes through it. That God himself put the, the, basically the curses and threats upon himself if he doesn't if he's not faithful to his covenant that he makes. You know, God didn't have to do that, obviously. It was for not only Abraham's benefit, but for all of God's people's benefit, to see the seriousness of God and his commitment. He established this one-sided covenant. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 8, we read that it is because of God's sincere love for them that he keeps his oath that he swore to the patriarchs. That's what it says. He, he keeps covenant because of his sincere love. Well, in this chapter, as we, again, as we walk through much of the Old Testament, we're going to witness God's love in different contexts and blessing. All really under the major context of that covenant with Moses. All right, so with that. Covenant blessings seen in the rest of the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Well, did you know that the Hebrew text of the Bible in the book of Exodus, that it begins with the word and? Now, why would it say that? Why would it say and is the first word? If it wasn't to continue something. Well, certainly... That's what's happening here. It goes right into the story, right out of those blessings that are pronounced in Genesis. You know, those blessings that Jacob pronounced at the end of his life. Well, the author submits that maybe this is a picture that we can see where God's blessings are being pronounced upon them. Those blessings pronounced in Genesis that they're going to be carried through through the rest of Scripture carried through the, the rest of the books that Moses wrote, these blessings. Well, we see very quickly as we read in the book of Exodus the divine blessings that are carried forward. We see this in chapter 1, verse 7, in terms of earthly blessing. You can see it on the screen right here. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, we already talked earlier about these words that I have underlined are a way to say blessing, blessing, blessing. Over and over again in different ways, blessing. Now, clearly this multiplication, this filling the land was perceived as a threat by the Egyptians. We're told that, in fact, in Scripture. So Israel was introduced to a powerful threat. The new king of Egypt, who didn't know Joseph, as the scripture tells us, Pharaoh. And so what we have here is a perfect background to a story that only God could have produced. Pharaoh versus the covenant-keeping God of Israel. 
Now we see the Lord's profound demonstration of his commitment to the people that he chose to love, those whom he chose to protect, um, Abraham's offspring, even the offspring. And God powerfully made himself known to them like no other nation who had ever existed. Uh, Not only to Israel, but really to the whole world. God's powerfulness, his who he is was in, in a large way, not completely, but in a large way, was revealed in the plagues. You know, it was not a secret what God was doing in Egypt, as we read later on how the nations had heard what God had done, and they were trembling with fear. So God reveals himself. He reveals to Pharaoh and his people that he has a specific and distinct desire to bless his people. It is them, here's the picture, it is them, Israel, them being with him, Israel with God in his presence. That's where he wants them. For that is the definition of what true blessing is. That's what we see in scripture. Being in the presence of God. Hence the title of this book. You can just see how it is them being with him that scripture declares is true blessing. Um, And you can just see it in in these verses here on the screen. I know it's a little small, but maybe you could at least see the uh, references and look it up yourself in your Bible. But, you know, over and over again, we see God's desire for them to be in his presence where true blessing is. He makes his presence known um, in the book of Exodus, and he delivers them. He reveals himself to them. Uh, Those are blessings in and of themselves, the deliverance and his revelation. Now, as we continue through this, moving a bit forward now, in the Pentateuch, we see in the book of Leviticus, now everyone's favorite book to read. Um, we see in Leviticus the absolute necessity of sacrifice for the people of God to live in the presence of the thrice holy God. Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke did some really good um, resource on Old Testament um, understanding uh, scripture in the Old Testament. He writes, the sacrifice that we read of, the sacrifice represents life. The sacrifice offered symbolizes the owner's life and God's ownership and sovereignty of all. Of course, it's the beginning of what it points forward to in Christ. Well, Osborne, he notes that when the worshiper, when the worshiper brought the animal forward, uh, he would place his hand heavily. You can just kind of picture what that kind of looks like. Heavily upon the head of that animal and what he calls a hand-leaning right. And just as a quick aside, it, a lot of, um, there's a number of ceremonial activities, even in regards to the sacrifice uh, and what that looked like, that the nations around them themselves also did. Not exactly the same way as Israel, 
but this, this idea of a hand leaning, right, wasn't just unique to Israel, but it was unique in terms of how God was using it and pointing to Christ. But they would put that, their hand heavily upon the animal, and there would be some establishment of a relationship, if you will, between the one who's off, this offerer and the animal. So the animal would be accepted on the offerer's behalf. We know this. Well, uh, the animal would then be sacrificed as substitutionary death in that place of the worshiper. Now, the result here was to be re- in restored communion with God. Because what does sin do? What does sin do? It separates us, right, from God. And so there must be a sacrifice. There must be appeasement, atonement, if you will. Um, so the result is restored communion with God and peace in a relationship that was threatened by their own sin. Now, again, this is early, you know, early on in Scripture. As God reveals himself and the prophets explain the law and then the covenant Moses throughout the Old Testament, things become more and more clear to what we have eventually in Christ himself. Now, when you consider the key elements in the sacrificial ceremony, uh, we see revealed how the act of this covering or the passing on the, the sins of this worshiper to the animal, it was wrapped in this picture of, of life and blood to the sacrifice. You know, this is explicit in the commentary that we read in Leviticus 17, verse 11. I'll bring that up real quick. It says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Now, you could underline that in your Bibles, because you'll see that again throughout Scripture. This sacrificial system, it provided means of atonement for sin. And it enabled communion between God and his people. And communion enabled between themselves as well, mind you. As a people of God. All all of this blessedly in the presence of God. And so as also, you know, as you're going in Leviticus, you know, Leviticus 19, even though we're not going to go over it this morning, is pivotal in terms of understanding God's redemptive plan. But in Leviticus 16, we see how serious God is about how they are to approach him. Now, you're going to remember this story. He's very serious about how he's to be approached in worship and therefore, you know, continue to experience the warmth of his presence. It's in chapter 16 where we read of that fateful consequence of offering to the Lord worship that is prescribed by the culture and not prescribed by God, and that shocking death of Nadab and Abihu. It wasn't God who prescribed that. And God, it makes it very clear in Scripture. Now, the importance of, strict, um, of sticking strictly to God's prescribed means of worship, it has tremendous, and it had tremendous consequence in Israel, understanding what the ultimate sacrifice would be someday. That, that once for all sacrifice in, in Jesus offering up himself, the lamb who would be standing, standing in victory. 
God would not allow Israel to taint that picture. And we would be wise to understand that today in our worship. So, all of this pointing, again, to what was they need to be considering to be enjoying God's presence, which where true blessing is found. Well, it's in the book of Numbers, as we go further in the Pentateuch, that we hear of really the most iconic Old Testament blessing that was uttered by the Lord through his commission that he gave to Aaron and his sons. Here it is on the screen. So we read in number six, beginning in verse 23, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. This is a very memorable prayer. And we see a picture of what it meant for Israel to truly experience blessing. Along with God's merciful guarantee that he would indeed bless the people of Israel. It was theirs to have. It was theirs to have just because of God's mercy and his choosing to love them. It was all the actions that God took. Now this blessing that Aaron gave on behalf of the Lord identifies that God alone he's the source and provider of blessing. You know, the, as we studied in James not too recently not too long ago of all these good and perfect gifts coming down from the Father of Lights. It's from him. He is the source. And this is something that ancient Israel struggled to remember as do many Christians today that he is the source of these blessings and what truly what a blessing is. But um, you know, one of the more striking features as you look at this prayer here um, a blessing is that it reveals God's intimate and personal character. Again, something unique to the God of Israel. How he truly cares and has compassion and loves those whom he chooses to love and bless. You know, those surrounding cultures around him, they would go to means to great means to appease their gods. We know, even sacrificing their own children. Something that God mentions multiple times that was never even entering his mind. Well, the last part of that blessing there in verse 27, Israel learns that they would not and they really could not experience God's blessing apart from their identity as his people marked out by his name upon them. When we wander away, even for just a little bit, out of the presence of God, if you will, we're going where he's told us not to go, um, we're sacrificing this blessing. We're giving it up. 
in the book of Numbers, we also um, see that story of Balaam and Balak, right? That's a very interesting story to read through. Um, it's in Numbers 22 through 24. Uh, Osborne commenting on this, this section, he says it's as if Balaam becomes the prophetic litmus test for Genesis 12, verse 3. Is God going to continue to bless this grumbling and murmuring people? Because they haven't been a joy to keep through the wilderness wandering up to this point. They've been very difficult, you know, stiff-necked people. And, and it's, you know, if you look at it, what he's saying here, Osborne's commenting is, here we have a prophet that wanted to bring curses. He didn't want to bring blessing. He wanted to make Balak, this king, happy. And yet he couldn't do anything but bless and bless and bless and bless. Four times. Different situations. Going up on this mountain, this mountain, that mountain. And all he could do is saying, well, I can only say what God says. And it was blessing and blessing of all that Israel had caused in terms of, um, in, in terms, in their rebellion, God continues to bless them, even through mouths of, a mouth of a prophet who didn't have that in his heart. Well, the final book of the Pentateuch opens with the second generation of Israelites. They're standing on the edge of the plains of Moab. They're about to enter the promised land. And more clearly than any other book in the Old Testament, and we see here Deuteronomy laying out the, the covenant stipulations for Israel and what the, the blessings and curses would be along with that. Well, Osborne, he writes that if one wants, if someone wants to quickly determine Israel's spiritual status in the Old Testament, the first question to be asked is, where are they? Where are they physically? Where are they in relationship to the promised land? Are they in the wilderness? Or in the land of Canaan, the place of blessing? Are they in exile in another land? Or are they in Canaan, the place of blessing? You know, part of that covenant was tied to this land. Where were they? And as you read Deuteronomy, you see that Israel was preparing to live in that blessed land and really soak in God's promises. But they were not yet to a point where they could claim total fulfillment of God's blessing. They, they weren't there yet. They never got there. They had not yet become a blessing to other nations. Not in terms of strict terms of the Mosaic Covenant. A huge part of God's plan was to use his chosen people to end up being the means to bless the earth. Now we know that happened in Christ, the line of David, but the nation of Israel failed in this. Deuteronomy it calls Israel to love and fear their covenant king and to walk in obedience to his good commands and therefore, being able to live in his blessing. So obedience, we'll talk, I'll mention this again. Obedience is tied to realizing these blessings. 
In Deuteronomy, we don't see anywhere that those blessings are more clear than we than in, in chapter 28. That's where the people are instructed that if they faithfully keep God's commands, all of these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. Now, if you want to, you can turn there real quick in your Bibles. I don't have a slide for this, but you see, beginning in verse 28, um, all these blessings, you know, the, the remainder of the chapter, it's got depictions of Israel flourishing in the promised land. They have fertility in their crops and their fertility in their livestock, abundance of food, safety in travel, victory in battle, foreign peoples seeing Israel's relationship to the Lord and fearing them because of that relationship. There's prosperity left and right and wealth. If they would have kept the covenant, if they would have been obedient. Now these blessings, again, are tied to their obedience, but they're tied to that, to God who made those things. They're, if they're going to have these blessings, they have to be in right relationship with God. We know the law doesn't save, so they had to keep the law. They had to keep the Mosaic law, and they, and they weren't able to do that, not with the right heart. The blessings included, of course, the curses that would come upon them for unfaithfulness. Um, they were also to be understood in the context of covenant, um, in the Mosaic covenant. And so outside of that covenant that God established with Moses, that meant not only loss of blessing, but blessing in the context, even in the no they would receive at best the, no, the blessing in terms of Noahic covenant. What does the Noahic covenant give to us? Well, that's the common grace that we receive. You know, the sun shines and rains on the sinner as well as the saint. They were giving up those special unique blessings under the mosaic that they could realize under the covenant of Moses. Um, the blessing that we read of in Deuteronomy uh, Osborne talks about here. He says, mercifully points to a future for God's people. In Deuteronomy 30, it speaks of God's mercy in restoring fortunes to them. You know, after they've been driven out of the promised land for, for not being faithful. If they would return to the Lord and obey him with all their heart, he would restore them. They would see blessing again. Uh, Osborne calls this like a second exodus that they would get to experience. God bringing them back to himself where blessing is. Their hearts being circumcised so that they will love him with all their heart and soul. And praise God that he does this. He's, this is the work of the spirit he's talking about here. God bringing, bringing people back to him. It's, what it's, it's pointing to that work that we have in the New Testament covenant, really. We see how the blessings run they run parallel with obedience. And that theme is carried out to the Old Testament. But really amazingly, it's how God takes it upon himself to ensure that his people will love him. I guess you would, now that's the real litmus test. Do you love him? Christ says, if you love me, you obey me. Well, moving out of the Pentateuch into the Old Testament, uh, 
larger area of the Old Testament. We walk into the book of Joshua and we read of Joshua and he's here at the end of his life. Um, and he brings to the attention the fact that he says, not one word has failed all the good things that the Lord our God promised concerning you. Not one thing has failed. We read of the continued struggle of the people to walk in faithfulness throughout the book of Judges. Now, sometimes shocked at what we uh, see that they're capable of doing despite their blessed identity as God's people. And by the time as we get to 1 Samuel and into the book of the Kings, we read of the reign of David and the royal seed that was promised in Genesis, it starts to become more and more clear, especially in the context of the, the Davidic covenant that extended through the David's kingly line. So God revealing himself more and more through covenants to understand what it means to truly be blessed. We see that David in his covenant, he's promised a couple things. One is there were, he would have a son, and there would an heir who would build a temple for the Lord. And then secondly, there, he would have an everlasting dynasty with one reigning on the throne forever. And that promise of the offspring given to the patriarchs is even now more specific. It's in the Davidic covenant, and it will be coming from the line of David. So we see again and again fulfillment of promises. Fulfillment of promise to David. We see this in Solomon, carried out in Solomon. Solomon builds him a temple. He does that. But like his first father, Adam, he didn't conquer the sin that plagued himself and the rest of mankind. He simply was not capable. He was not the righteous branch of David. He was not the offspring. And that opulence that he enjoyed, ironically, is often mistaken for blessing. It became part of his downfall. All that he had, you know, besides his ignoring the command of God to not take excessive wives, especially from her surrounding nations, you know, Solomon, after Solomon, the people continued to follow in the way of the kings and, and Solomon's unfaithfulness in these areas contributed to that. We can look really and see this, uh, the way it turns out for the, the line of the kings as a way to, you could kind of judge their, what Osborne calls a theological grading of their faithfulness um, you can see how it measures up to these um, stipulations that Moses gives in Deuteronomy. We can see that they're not, they're not able to do it. They're not capable of doing this. In, in 2 Kings 17, verse 15, it reads, They despised his statutes, this being the kings and the people, really. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. You know, we went through um, 
some, uh, one of the books recently, and you become what you worship. You become like that which you worship. They went after false idols and, and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. You know, that word despised there. It says they despised his statutes and covenants. Now, I've said this before, but I think it bears repeating. Um, the way we understand the word despise today is not often how it's used in the Bible. They despised God's statutes, mostly in that they did not rightly respect them. They would do them on the outside, but they didn't respect God's commandments and his statutes. They didn't fear God. So in their despising, they would do things like commingling the, his commands with cultural expectations, cultural norms, syncretization in their worship. A half-truth is a full lie. God would not accept it. And eventually, as we're familiar with, again, our recent study in Jeremiah Malachi, Judah's exile, it's going to raise for them certain questions, very concerning questions regarding the covenant blessings that they thought were owed to them, really owed to them because God, they had the temple. First question is, what of the promise to David and the eternal reign of, the, of a Davidic heir? How is that to be now? We are decimated as a people living in a foreign land, not being able to you know, keep the ceremonies. Another question, what of the promise to live in the land? Again, that covenant tied to that land. And thirdly, in what of the relationship to God and his presence in that temple? That's probably the biggest thing. They didn't have the temple anymore. So to them, they didn't have a God anymore. Well, the prophets, as we continue in the Old Testament, the prophets, they served as what you could say covenant enforcers. You know, their job was to teach. Teach scripture. Teach what God has commanded and um, given to them in terms of the law and, and through the covenant context. They were covenant enforcers. And they again and again would be calling back the king and the people of God to their covenant king in heaven. They did this before the exile and after the exile. And despite the people's unfaithfulness and that judgment and exile that would come upon them, take the prophet Isaiah, for example. He speaks of this, the exile and judgment. He brings forward words that are full of promise and blessing that go hand in hand with thoughts on creation and covenant. Again, God's mercy showing through. And we'll, let me put it on the screen real quick. Yeah, Isaiah 51, verses 1 through 3. This is what the prophet Isaiah is writing. It says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, 
and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden. Her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving in the voice of song. This is something that was spoken to a people that even in the future. Israel's future blessing will be found in the covenant faithfulness of those who pursue God, really with Abraham-like faith. So we see promise even for the Gentiles in this. That wouldn't be explained till later on. The, pro- the prophet's job was to remind them of this. And they didn't like to be reminded of it. They were cruel to the prophets. Now, a distinctive characteristic found in the prophets was uh, this, the promise of future blessing was not just for the nation of Israel, but for the whole world who would be called and believe. And it would be realized through covenant faithfulness and a mediation of a, from a new Davidic king. Of course, Christ himself, the Messiah. We read that in, in Isaiah. And we see it in Jeremiah as well. There will be a spiritual transformation of the people of God. God would do this. Not, not one in which the law would they'd go around it somehow and make it work out outside the law. But one in which the law would be completely and perfectly fulfilled on their behalf. God made the way. So in his means to bless them, he brought them to him reconciled to him through his own son. All right. Moving into the the Psalter, Book of Psalms, and the the wisdom writings like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Uh, These writings present us with a picture of Israel's covenant life, what it should look like. You know, this blessing before the Lord. And one of the most common formulas that you see in the book of the Psalms is, blessed be the Lord. See it again and again. Well, this said in response to blessings that were received, turn back to praise to the Lord for those blessings. Gratitude for his goodness. And another thing that can be concluded in as you read the Psalms is that the blessing of praise that was declared back to God It's not because his people want to just simply elicit more blessing from God. You know, look, here's a formula. If we do this, then God will give us more blessing. It wasn't that. But because he had already blessed them. Their blessing God was just pure thankfulness. It wasn't a manipulation that you would see among the surrounding nations. Now, to many of the Jews, they had let it become that way. A way to manipulate God. But that's not the, what they were called to through the book of Psalms. So the blessings that we find in the Psalms, they're both corporate blessings. They're also individual blessings. And some of those individual blessings that are noted in the Psalms are what you have up here on the screen, like delighting in the law. That is a blessing. You see transgression forgiven. Refuge given by God. 
refuge taken by the individual. That's not to be underestimated because of our hard hearts that reject God's kindness. Number four, making the Lord our trust. That's a blessing. We're, we don't like, we don't trust. We want to see it and hold it before we trust. Number five, dwelling in God's house. Number six, having the fear of the Lord. And seven, actually having God as their Lord. That's just a sample of blessings that we read of in, in the Psalms. To experience the state of being blessed, Osborne writes, is to be properly oriented toward the God of blessing, you know, fearing him, trusting him, you know, taking refuge, you know, all these things that you saw, experiencing forgiveness. Now, while there are certainly psalms that present divine blessing as, you know, fertility and success, this understanding of multiplying and filling the land, like we see in Genesis, you know, these concepts cannot be separated from the covenant relational context that we have. Being in covenant with God in right relation to him. And without having God's presence, there really is no blessing to experience. We kind of know what that feels like when the psalmist talks about your bones being heavy and you can't sleep. It's just a taste of it. You know, being properly oriented toward God requires a healthy view of God's law. As the Apostle Paul writes, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. One writer puts it like this. Keeping the law is a blessing. Is blessing itself. Being bound to God's life and will and fullness of character. You want to reflect God's character, you're going to be keeping the law. Not in your own strength, not for your salvation. It is part of experiencing His presence, you know, not being a slave to sin. You know, sin is not only to be understood as rebellion to God's law, but as separation from God Himself. This is partly why it really makes no sense at all to be a Christian and living in sin. And to live well requires wisdom. That's what we're taught in the, the wisdom writings. What living well looks like. Wisdom and blessing both require living and right covenant relationship with God. And wisdom is necessary to know how to live when it just seems like blessings are not coming as expected. You know, before we ask where are the blessings, because, well, you know, I've lived well before God, so I should be having blessings. Before we go there, consider that what can appear as divine blessing is actually a slippery slope that leads many people away from God. You know, I'm speaking mainly of those whose, 
whose best life is now, not the future. They have the so-called good things of the world, but they don't live in a right relationship to God. This is why having wisdom with the blessing is so important because it helps you recognize what true blessing is. Nearness to God, a deepening relationship with God. Being able to say like the psalmist in Psalm 17, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Oh, to be satisfied someday when we awake in heaven with the complete likeness of God. Not being God, of course, but likeness of God. Being perfected. Our sanctification being complete. The wisdom literature helps us to see that what we see with our eyes is not always what you get. And this is critical for the Christian in regard to appreciating the blessed life that God gives. Osborne, he writes, Wisdom is not achieved by applying Proverbs-like logic to the world, parsing out all the experiences of success and failure that we see around us in, in our own lives. It is lived out in humble trust and wonder in the goodness of God's character, in times of plenty and in times of want, and both plenty and want. So if we approach Proverbs in much of the Psalms with a if this then that type of mentality, then we're going to be confused and frustrated. The wise living, again, is instructed to us so that we will know how to live in a way that best reflects God's character. And the fact that we still suffer despite living well, it's not meant to discourage and make us question God's faithfulness. We know that the suffering is meant to test our faith and to strengthen it. We know this. We have trouble remembering we must look at it this way, brothers and sisters. We've got to look at it this way. If we lived on Easy Street or, you know, Big Rock Candy Mountain, as the song goes, how genuine would our faith be? It gives the devil opportunity. It gives him opportunity to ask, as he did in Job's case, does Job fear God for no reason? Has our faithfulness and decision to live wisely, has it been bought by God with his blessings? Has God bought us off? Well, this is satanic rhetoric. Of course it is. But it is what the devil put before God in the book of Job. And God didn't take the bait, of course. Instead, he let suffering prove Job's faithfulness. And even though Job did respond foolishly at times, he never did what the devil ultimately wanted him to do and curse God. He never did. The ultimate result was that God was glorified and he was honored. I've said this before, 
it's so important, I want to say it again. Anytime we suffer, anytime we suffer for Christ's sake and living well before God, the devil is proven wrong. He's put in his place. We've chosen to obey God despite what the world throws at us. To live wisely despite what happens. The devil's put in his place and God is glorified. And, and it's done in a way that it's seen before the host of heaven. Suffering well is living in victory. If you suffer well. You know, throughout the Old Testament, through the Pentateuch, the, the historical writings, the wisdom writings, the prophets, time and again, blessing is seen as keeping covenant with God, being in right relation to him. All right, that ends chapter three of this study.